For those who fish, this is the Drake cast. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. This episode of the Drake Cast is sponsored by our good friends at Scott Fly Rods. I got my first Scott Fly Rod before I went to Turks and Caicos to do bone fishing. This is my buddy Ben. Yeah, I picked up a nine foot nine weight. It was incredible. I ended up bringing in a couple of uh, bonefish with it, as well as some jacks and some other things. I was able to spend pretty much the majority of the day out there casting and not get tired. Uh, I've also used this rod in Alaska for uh, silver salmon fishing. The nine weight held up really well against some of these really big 20 plus pound fish. And Ben liked his Scott fly rod so much that he invested in a couple more of them a uh, six weight nine foot for trout fishing and that's the nicest casting rod that I have by far Um, and I bought um, almost the exact same rod for my brother-in-law to get him started in fly fishing too. I just like that they're a uh, Colorado company they put pride in their rods and they're definitely high quality they feel good and if you break one they'll fix it. To start your very own love affair with a handcrafted fly rod Swing on down to your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. We're also sponsored by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. www.yellowdogflyfishing.com Here at the Drake headquarters in Denver, Colorado, and across the majority of the U.S., we're noticing that our fishing options are quickly decreasing. What do we have here? Destinations. Hmm, what looks warm right now? Bahamas, Belize... Brazil's probably pretty warm. Christmas Islands, Cook Islands, Costa Rica. I mean, even Mexico, let's look at that. To ward off the pre-winter blues, it's time to research a cold season getaway. Looks like they have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Quite a few lodges down in Mexico that I could go to. Let's click on one of them. Permit, Bonefish, Tarpon, and Snook. Season year-round, but it looks like right now, coming up in January, could be pretty good. I might just have to book a trip down there. To find your own wintertime adventure, visit yellowdogflyfishing.com. All right, on to the show. Hey, can you hear this all right? Sounds like you're in a silo. Just this last week, I called up a longtime friend of the family. Uh, Let me say goodbye to Janice. She's heading over to Northfield, Minnesota. So it's a spectacular day here. You know, it's 47 degrees. Take care. Okay, go ahead, Elliot. This is Don Wisner. He's an older gentleman with a studious look to him. Well, I had fished all my life, you know, bait fished all my life. I grew up in Pennsylvania with a father that fished. We didn't have a lot of choices back then because the rivers were all polluted in Pittsburgh. But we would go to farm ponds and fish bass, things like that, and go to Canada once in a while. And But I, I never fly fished until I actually moved to um, Menominee, Wisconsin. And the reason that we're hearing about how Don became a fly fisherman is because this is right about when Don's life began to parallel a pretty well-known story within the fly fishing world. And to help tell this tale, I knew I had to talk to Don's son, Stephen Wisner. My dad started fly fishing back in the, the early 70s. Steve is in his late 40s, his hair has just started to gray, And both him and his father are really fantastic fly fishermen. 
kind of legends within the admittedly small community of Eau Claire, Wisconsin. You know, nobody did it. They were like weirdos. You know, it was almost like a thing where all my friends were into fishing and then, you know, my, my dad did this weird kind of fishing that nobody else did. And there was a Lutheran pastor in Menominee named Ernst Staling, who kind of took me under his wing and he suggested I had to learn to fish in a proper fashion. So my brother and I learned to cast Presbyterian style on a metronome. He began each session with the same instruction. Casting is an art that is performed on a four count rhythm between 10 o'clock and two o'clock. If he had had his way, nobody who did not know how to catch a fish would be allowed to disgrace a fish by catching it. I had to learn to cast in really tiny, tiny streams. I used to call them pisser creeks because you could be across them. That's how small they were. So Don learns how to fly fish, and pretty soon Stephen is joining him on the river. Stephen kind of grew up, uh, grew up fly fishing. Dunn County in uh, in Wisconsin has got these wonderful, wonderful limestone streams that are full of native brook trout. It was funny. My dad didn't have any interest in brown trout in those days, and you know, we caught him and ate him. But eventually, Stephen and Don outgrew the Pisser Creeks of Dunn County. As the years went on, my dad kind of hooked up and met other people, and eventually they got a cabin up by Rhinelander, Wisconsin. It was on the Prairie River. We called it a shack. Uh, they always say the difference between a shack and a cottage is a woman, and uh, that's probably a truth. It became a gathering place for a whole bunch of people in those days that fished. Guys came up from Iowa from a Hawkeye fly fishing uh, club, and there were good fly tires. There were uh, there was a whole group of creative people. It was a thing where you know if you're a kid and you start getting into this thing, it was it was a real way to connect with sort of grown men. I mean, in that I had a couple of friends that whose dads were also into fly fishing, and we really all kind of found that like we would be treated differently as we got better and better at, at fly fishing. And Norm, what do you want to be when you grow up? Minister, I guess. Or a professional boxer. You think you could beat Jack Johnson? I think you could. I'd lay a bet on What are you going to be? First we'll fly fisherman? There's no such thing. There is it? No. Hmm. I guess a boxer. Not a minister. <laughs> you felt like you were a part of something that was kind of a, a, a big deal, I guess. I never thought of it as father-son time. It was just simply a place that I went, and he went with me anywhere I went. Uh, and so he had a whole lot of tutors once he got there because there were some really knowledgeable people that would gather there. And then there came a point where he didn't need a tutor anymore. So, uh, Yeah. And in a similar manner to how the father-son duo moved past brook trout and limestone creeks, the Prairie River soon became kind of old news as well. Yeah, I was teaching in St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, and uh, I was walking by the bulletin board one day, and uh, there was a 
picture of this log cabin, kind of an ad under it. It's, they were looking for a student to come there in the summer. And, and then I saw where it was. It was on the Henry's Fork of the Snake. So I uh, I took down the ad and the picture and brought it home. And I said to Janice, I said, hey, that's where, that's where we're going this summer. And she said, well, you know, you have to apply, don't you? And I said, well, I've got the, I've got the note here, so there's no need for anybody else to do this. So I called them up and uh, I talked to the person who was responsible for finding someone for the summer. And I told them, I'm not a student, I'm a faculty member. What did I do? And they said, great, terrific. I think it was really a big leap for my dad. It, you know, he just, you could kind of see it where he's like, hey, I got an idea. What if we went and lived on the Henry's Fork for the summer. So that just became the way our our whole family spent our summers, you know, starting, you know, back in the late 70s. And that's when the Henry's Fork was, was I think, without a doubt, the best trout stream in the United States, or at least the most, the, the one most people revered the most. And and with good reason then, it was a real heyday for that for that river in the late 70s. And what, what kind of work was your dad doing in Idaho? He's a Lutheran minister. My father was a Presbyterian minister and a fly fisherman. There was this weird um, thing in, in Island Park, Idaho, where they had this little church called the Little Chapel of the Pines, and they needed somebody to come for the summer. It was like a church for people that were on vacation. I mean, the history of fly fishing is filled with clergy, beginning with Isaac Walton, I guess. And he told us about Christ's disciples being fishermen. And we were left to assume, as my younger brother Paul and I did, that all first-class fishermen on the Sea of Galilee were fly fishermen. And that John, the favorite, was a dry fly fisherman. Theology is an integrative activity. Uh, you bring together many, many disciplines. And fly fishing brings together many, many disciplines. But I, I also think clergy have a, hopefully we do, huh, have a curiosity and we're concerned, hopefully, about the natural environment and all critters, big and small. Your dad moves out there to be a minister for the summers. And how did he get hooked up into the fly fishing? Well, let's not ever mistake the fact that my dad went out there to be a fly fisherman for the summers. And that being a minister got him in the door, got us a free cabin and a place to stay. You know, one thing about being a Lutheran minister is you don't have any money. So you can't just do those kind of things. So they're always, you know, you have to like work an angle. And I mean, my dad is very, you know, believes in, in, in what he does and, and, uh, you know, but we went out there to fly fish and that was a means to, to that end. So, um, and what immediately struck you that said, I want to do this. You see that flyer. I mean, why I want to be there? Because the, the Henry's Fork was probably in those days, you know, one of the premier streams in the world. I mean, it was a, truly a blue ribbon stream. It was uh, just an incredible fishery. That's why, you know, I jumped at the chance. And uh, it proved to be one of the real turning points of my life and my family's life. And uh, it was a great opportunity. And though it is true that one day a week was given over wholly to religion, you know, one day a week, you know, for God, and then the other, uh, the other six days a week for trout. That was basically it. In the afternoon, we would walk with him while he unwound between services. He almost always chose a path along the big Blackfoot. I fished every day. I mean, I, I had a chance to 
to do that. Every afternoon, I was set free, untutored and untouched till supper, to learn on my own the natural side of God's order. I just had all day to fish. We literally lived right on the Henry's Fork in the we were in last chance Idaho and so I just figured out pretty early on I went and got like this raft from you know Walmart and then what I would do is just in the morning I would put the raft in and I would float through and I would just fish all day long I just go from spot to spot and find rising fish and then at the end of the day my my dad or my mom would just come pick me up and there could be no better place to learn than the Montana of my youth it was a world with dew still on it more touched by wonder and possibility than any I have since known. Well, I, you know, I always have a kind of attraction for teeny dry flies and, you know, delicate stuff. I was, I was always attracted to hatches and that whole entomology thing. And uh, that was one of the things that I really attracted me to fly fishing was you could integrate a whole lot of different skills and, and, and uh, disciplines. In fact, when Steve was a little kid, I mean, that's one of the things that we would spend time doing was just learning insects. And uh, I sometimes insisted that he learn them in Latin, but... Each weekday while my father worked on his Sunday sermon, I attended the school of the Reverend McLean. So while my friends spent their days at Missoula Elementary, I stayed home and learned to write the American language. Good. Now throw it away. That was probably my <laughs> kind of little quirk. Um, yeah. And, and, and after the first uh, year, it was apparent that, you know, there may be some opportunities to do some other things. And that's when I met Mike Lawson, uh, who owned uh, Henry's Fork Anglers. And uh, I talked to Mike about guiding for him. And... Uh, during the next winter, then I did my CPR and my first aid, and then passed my boatman's test, and and then he put me on uh, on his guide staff the next summer. We'd go into to Henry's Fork Anglers to get stuff. You know, I was I was shy and and I was a kid, but on this particular day, it was right in the, the middle of the Green Drakes, and I just. I had this section of bank, and there was just fish stacked up on the bank, just eating green drakes. And and I just kind of started at the back of the of the line and was catching them. And I didn't really know it, but Mike Lawson and actually Mel Krieger, who was a real you know guru of fly casting, were just sitting across the river from me and sort of watching. And I just I, I ended up I had a pretty banner day. He called it shadow casting, keeping his line above water long enough and low enough to make a rainbow rise. And I realized that in the time I was away, my brother had become an artist. Probably got, you know, six or seven you know, nice fish. And, but I lost my landing net, which just broke my heart, because again, you know, we didn't have any money, so. And so I went into the shop all like brokenhearted, hoping someone had, had brought it in or found it, which they hadn't. But when I was there, uh, Mike Lawson offered me a job, and it was, it was a huge deal. I mean, for me, it was, I mean, it was the biggest deal ever for me at that point, you know, to get to have, you know, this guy that I really respected, you know, offer me a job when I was, you know, 13, uh, you know, and start working in, in what was the best fly shop, I think, in the United States at that time, or one of them. And uh, eventually then he could use Sarah also. Don's daughter and Steve's sister. 
she became affectionately known as the shop wench, which is, uh, she never appreciated that title, but, but she spent two summers uh, working for Mike also. And you work at the fly shop a couple summers and then you start sitting on the sticks? Yeah. Yeah, you know, you couldn't guide until you were 18. I actually sank a boat on my very first guide trip. <laughs> I've got a great idea. I know how we can go down in history. How's what? that? We borrow Old Man Seifert's rowboat, and we shoot the chutes. Oh, you no. can't shoot You're the chutes, Paulie. You can try. You can die trying. They bury you with full honors. Tell them, Norm. Come on. I'm with you. Let's Come do on. It. <laughs> what? Come on. <laughs> a pretty inauspicious start, Ed. This this really nice older couple, and I uh, yeah I, I I actually sank the boat, so that was maybe not the best way. I never told anyone about it, and and this is my first time ever probably publicly admitting that my very first guide trip resulted in my boat sitting on the bottom of the river. And then Steve stayed on and guided for Mike. And then when he went to Montana State, he stayed on and guide for Mike, too. In all, I spent six years at Dartmouth, away from home nearly all that time. And I went to Montana State University, which was sort of perfect, so it was right up the road. And I became a guide too, at too young, so I didn't appreciate it the way I probably should have. I mean, it was a great job. I was making way more money than any, than any other college students were. To the son of a Montana minister, Dartmouth was more than an education. It was a revelation, exposing me to a world I'd only guessed at. Now I look back on it, I had probably had no business being a guide. I mean, trout fishing had just been such a part of my life that I kind of took it for granted. And, and so I graduated from Montana State and went immediately out to Washington State where I got a job at uh, Mount Baker Ski Area. So I was doing avalanche control there. And the fly fishing there was so foreign for me. It was steelheading, you know, and I just didn't really know how to do it. And so I just wasn't steelhead fishing. I, I took a hiatus would be the best way to put it. I mean, I just didn't really fish for a number of years. Do much fishing out east? None. None? I worked at the ski area for a while. And then I got, I started going up to Alaska and was commercial fishing for four years out of Sandpoint, Alaska. I'm picking your brother up too much lately. Besides, he's behind in the big stud poker game at Lolo. It's not healthy to get behind in that big game at Lolo. For my dad, the, my post-college life, I think it really troubled him that I was out working at a ski area, you know, and uh, um, on fishing boats. And my dad's just a very German guy who feels you know you need to have a plan and set your path and and all this kind of stuff and i think he i suspect it drove him somewhat crazy to have a son that just was not doing any of those kind of things to his credit i think he, he did the best he could to not completely let that uh, uh be apparent but but i i i know for a fact that it drove him a little bit nuts one thing that when I talked with Steve was that he kind of floated around for a few years after college and didn't really have a goal. And he said that he thought that probably drove you a little bit nuts. Is there any truth to that? Oh, um, 
Yeah, I guess that be. Uh, we never, you know, we haven't really talked about that. I uh, uh, first of all, I knew Steve was never suicidal. So if he was crawling around the mountain or, you know, skiing with a load of dynamite or TNT on his back, I knew he wasn't suicidal, and he had uh, incredible skills. Um, so I always had confidence in his skills. I never was completely sure what he was looking for on these uh, on his adventures, but. I think he was raised, as as his sister also was raised to be adventuresome. And and you know if you raise a kid to be adventuresome, you can't rein them in when they become too adventuresome. While I was worried, I mean every parent is worried, and he was in my prayers, you know, daily. Um, I I also knew that this was important to him to do these things. And then. Yeah, at a certain point, you know, if you commercial fish, you got to make some real, you got to make some serious life decisions. So I went back to grad school and I got a, a master's degree in English and I ended up working for a while. I was producing a, an outdoors television show. Have you considered an advanced degree? The law? Medicine? No. The ministry? I got married. We had some kids, and and you know, really, the the world. I, I just started realizing that 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 teaching might be a, a a really good tie into that, and it was something you know, really because of guiding. I think I kind of knew I was good at. I mean, and so I became a high school teacher, which I've done now for fifteen years. I've applied for several teaching positions, and uh, have you? Yes, college level, but I haven't heard anything yet. Oh, no, 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 it's early, but. Well, now you have taught classes already, haven't you? Yes. And did you find that experience rewarding? That is to say, do you feel this could be your calling? My calling? Can you give me an example of like a time when you and your dad were not necessarily seeing eye to eye and how fishing maybe managed oh, to smooth well, that over? When I would come home, my dad would, you know, okay, let's go spend a day in the boat. And we would get in, and, and it was just this, this bridge, you know. At some point, we'd be talking about the heavy stuff in, in life when you're in a drift boat. But it all started with, you know, um, what color popper we were going to fish with. And then, you know, um, sort of got into whatever other discussion we had to have. It just kept what could have been tense and kind of uncool conversations, you know, cordial, I think, you know. So thank goodness for that. And this this kind of floating around by Steve, did that put a strain on your relationship at all? I don't know if it put a strain, but, you know, there were a lot of times we didn't have a chance to talk. <laughs> you know, I didn't know where he was in the world. He was somewhere. I wish Paul could have been here tonight. Yeah, so we didn't have a whole lot of chances to talk. I mean, we, we do it best we're in the confines of a drift boat. I guess I would say that. Some people do it really well with their kids. You know, you sit down in a bar over a beer, but I don't drink beer, so, uh, and he doesn't drink scotch, so we get in a drift boat, and, you know, if you're going to float for six, seven hours, wow, it's, a, it's, it's, really, it's really wonderful. It's, it's just a wonderful kind of confine. And uh, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at an age right now, I mean, you know, I'm 77 years old, and I can't, I can't cast all day anymore. I can still row. So to be able to row for somebody that can really fish and to, and to be able to put them in position where you're kind of second-guessing where their next cast is going to be, that's kind of an intimate thing. 
you have to know somebody to be able to do that, kind of read their mind, and and uh, and we we kind of function that way together. And what was the importance of the book "A River Runs Through It" to your family and to you? It's funny that to get asked that question because I've actually thought about it a, a fair amount. That book was an incredibly important book to my family. You know, way before the movie, I mean, way before the movie, in the 70s, that book was a part of our family. I mean, that was a thing that my dad literally would sit and read aloud, you know? I mean, and um, and I don't even know. I don't know if, if my dad was just seeing, the making that kind of connection to it himself or not, or just, I mean, I know, but, you know, I know the religious connections, you know, which the book is full of. I mean, to my dad, those made a ton of sense. That was just just an important part of our lives. Well, you know, I, we relate to different people in the book, I suppose. I could always relate to, uh, to, to Norman McLean's father, you know, who was the Presbyterian pastor. And uh, what he wanted for his sons, uh, you know. And uh, so I knew... I knew, uh, you know, that that was the character in the book that I related to very well. Are you uh, more Paul or Norman? You know, I think I'm an exact uh, split of being half Paul and half Norman. I mean, you know, I look at it now. I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm a married man with children, and I, I have a job, and I pay my bills and, you know, take all of those kind of things very seriously. You know, on the other hand, I might get behind in the big poker game out at Lolo. I first of all never thought of the book really about fly fishing. I really thought it was about family dynamics, which I still believe it is. But it also is about a sense of place. Um, the, the neat thing was, you know, when people would talk about the book, then they would look at me and say, you know, I know why that's important to you now. And although we we did memorize some of the lines. How is your relationship with your dad throughout this whole process? Oh, well, I think it's been probably one of the, 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 the keys to my relationship with my dad. You know, the church is something that's really important to my dad. And, uh, you know, in honest assessment is it's never really mattered to me at all. I mean, you know, I've, I've never really wanted anything to do with it and um, with that part of his life. And, and at the same time, I was really into skiing and, and uh, rock climbing and, and just some things that I think my dad didn't understand or, or care about. And so fly fishing was just always this real touchstone, you know, and, and sort of an area of real mutual respect, I think. I think we both, you know, I always understood that my dad was a fantastic trout fisherman. And, and I think, you know, early on, he gave me kind of the same and a credit when we're talking about fishing, we're very much on the same page, and I, I think it's been a really important part of of of, of our relationship because, you know, um, without it, it you know, it, it's possible that we could, we, you know, could find ourselves, you know, feeling kind of estranged, you know. So he was your eldest son. What was your relationship like while he was growing up, like as a young child? Well, you know. Um... Yeah, that's a really a difficult question. You probably have to ask him. Uh, I, I look back on that with an enormous amount of uh, guilt and regret because, um, I mean, I was busy a lot. For example, uh, I just celebrated the 50th year of my anniversary of ordination, and in, in that 50 years, I did something like, you know, 650 weddings. Well, that's 650 weekends that I wasn't around. And so I 
always felt a bit of uh, a bit of guilt of, uh, over that that my somehow my vocation took precedence sometimes and I think it was difficult for Steve probably to grow up uh, under the watchful eyes of congregations still uh, there's such a thing as a being a preacher's kid and, and I think that probably had some effect on Steve but uh, well with my relationship I guess my relationship was uh, uh, hope hopefully Hopefully he saw in me some things worth emulating. And um, I hope he saw me as being a human being, flawed, as it were, and um, and, and yet with the capability of forgiving. So, yeah. Stephen and Don, father and son, now live in the same town. And, and we both know this one river that runs uh, through our community, our, our town, uh, the Chippewa. We, we both know it like our hand, I guess. And uh, to be on the river, that river that you love very much with somebody who loves it also, that's kind of the common bond right there. It's sort of a love of place. And Steve has recently started guiding again. Uh, yeah, but, but guiding in a completely kind of different way now than I did when I was a kid. What are you doing now, and how does it feel to kind of be back? You know, when I was younger, it, it, it was a way to make money. It was a way to do something I liked and was already good at, but it was also just a way to make money. And and now, I mean, yeah, the money's nice, and I don't want to want to want to downplay it. I, on my second marriage, and we have five kids, you know, and kids embrace it. So obviously, the money is nothing to scoff at. But but now I kind of view it differently. I mean, I kind of feel like coming back to Wisconsin. And discovering this fishery here, it's discovery that that Wisconsin is really the place that I want to be. Steve is again guiding. What are your thoughts on this full circle for him from fishing back to fishing? Well, I mean, it's just it's just delightful. It's sort of like when your kid leaves home and, you know, then they move back. You know they needed to leave, but they came back with a whole bunch of gifts, and then they want to make an investment back uh you know in a sense of place that's important to you you know i'm delighted that he uh he's doing something that i can understand and, but, but he's doing it by the way uh, you know he's doing it on a level that's far beyond what i could do or what i ever did he, he's a much much better guy than i ever was at that moment i knew surely and clearly that i was witnessing perfection you, you are a fine fisherman. So I might be able to, at one time, be a little bit more graceful in my casting, but he, he just has an enormous amount of skills. And I, I can just see he just develops a kind of love affair for, for, for this river. And, and that's, you know, the more people that love a river, the more people take care of a river. And, and, uh, and he's kind of an evangelist for uh, river care and river stewardship. Um, that's delightful for me to see that he has these values and he wants to share them. And it was there he felt his soul restored and his imagination stirred. Long ago, rain fell on mud and became rock. Half a billion years ago. But even before that, beneath the rocks, are the words of God. Listen. Yeah. 
And if Paul and I listen very carefully, all our lives, we might hear those words. Stick around for this week's field notes and scenes from our next episode. Many thanks to Don and Steve for speaking so candidly about their relationship. And many thanks to Columbia Pictures for giving us access to the audio from this movie, which they definitely did. This episode is most certainly not a lawsuit waiting to happen. For this week's field notes, we head to the Pacific Northwest to Vancouver, British Columbia. Hello. Dave speaking. I managed to get Dave Steele. S-T-E-E-L-E. The owner of Highland Tackle on the phone to chat about how the fishing there has been in the last few weeks and what anglers should expect in the coming months. Most of the fishery around the Vancouver, North Vancouver area at the moment is uh, coho. In some of the systems, we've got another uh, probably maybe three weeks of coho fishing left. So there's lots of guys out uh, in the Fraser Valley and up in the Squamish area and uh, in the Chehalis, you know, catching some really nice coho at this time of year. You do get a sort of a mixed batch right now. I was out a couple of weeks ago and, well, no, a week ago, let's say, and we were still getting really bright fish, but the, it was starting to get to be about, you know, the percentile was probably about uh, a third bright and two-thirds starting to get a little bit gray, still very nice fish, uh, starting to get a little bit of the hook nose, uh, you know, again, which is part and parcel of the whole life cycle. So, uh, I always consider like a big red coho is every bit as beautiful as a dime bright coho because they're at different stages of their life. They they like to sort of sit themselves in, in very slow moving water on the edge of sloughs or on the edge of backwaters. And so quite often you're having to cast into some slower non-moving water and it's all about, you know, stripping it through there and, and trying to get some action that will activate the coho. So you can use... Uh, very small, simple patterns. Uh, you can get into the tractor patterns will also work for coho, usually in chartreuses and and sometimes in purples and, and whatnot. I've caught coho on, you know, green tarpon worms. That'll start to wind down a little bit over the next two or three weeks, but then there'll be a small little window where it's pretty quiet towards early December, and then uh, out in the Fraser Valley, we'll start our winter steelhead fishery. So that usually gets going about mid-December and then gets better as we get into January and February. And a lot of intruder patterns, again, because they're winter steelhead, a lot of attractor patterns. So uh, you get a lot of those on the swing. And how about the forecast for this year's steelhead run? Uh, I think it's going to be about average. I mean, it was uh, pretty darn good last year in some of our local areas. One of the favorite fisheries, which, uh, you know, has been around for a long time, uh, was the Thompson River, and it, uh, the numbers in that are, are been decimated. And there's actually quite a large petition online right now to try to get uh, both governing bodies to wake up and move uh, in a direction about conservation with regard to those outstanding fish. So that's if there was a sad aspect of this fall, it would be the fact that the Thompson basically wasn't viable. And a lot of people that I know that uh, fished it for their lifetime, uh, in the essence of, of, of 
protecting the fish opted to stand down and to not fish it this year. To sign the aforementioned petition, which if you haven't done so, I highly encourage you to do, you can find a link on our website, drakemag.com. It's also there that you can find pictures of Don and Steve from the early 80s when they were out in Idaho. To end this episode, I just want to share a quick conversation that I had with Steve Weisner about his current guiding business, which is called Eau Claire Anglers, and he's based out of Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Wisconsin has the, is really the place that I want to be. You know, there was a time when, 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 when I came here and I thought like, well, you know, it's the real fly fishing is out in Montana or it's in Wyoming or it's in Colorado. And that's just not the case. I mean, yeah, sure it is. If, if your whole idea of what fly fishing is, is, is fishing for 18 inch uh, trout, then, then yeah, Montana is the place to be. But if your idea of what, what fly fishing is, is variety is to go after this great variety of species, then you know, I'm sitting here in my house right now, and the Chippewa River's right over our shoulder, you know, it's literally, you know, 30 feet away, and I can go out there, and I can fish for pike, I can fish for smallmouth, I can fish for muskies, I can fish for uh, for suckers, I can cast dry flies to moon eyes, I can bounce stuff on the bottom for walleyes if I wanted to, we can fish for carp, I mean, all of this stuff right here right out the back door and not just a little bit it's great you know and this is the epicenter of smallmouth bass bass fishing and and musky fishing so guiding for me now is just being an evangelist for that i just feel like you know i i, I feel this like desire to show people to, that you could expand your horizons as a fly fisher you, you, you know you don't just have to cast size 18 pale morning duns to to rising trout that's super cool but there's a whole lot more in the world you know than just that and and this is the place where uh, where, where, where i can do all that stuff and next week we actually get to hop into steve's drift boat and chase after some of these fish so make sure to tune in thanks for listening this has been the drake cast <laughs>